If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently... We'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, the 3rd of September, sees the publication of Britain at Bay, the first volume in a major new history of Britain's Second World War. It's written by Alan Allport, who's a historian based at Syracuse University in New York. In the book, Alan covers the years 1938 to 41, exploring the build-up to war, the opening salvos of the conflict, and dramatic events such as the evacuation from Dunkirk, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. In this interview with our editor Rob Attar, he offers his take on these and other key developments in the conflicts. Now, because this interview explores the war years in some depth, 
we've decided to split it into two episodes. You'll be able to hear the second half in tomorrow's episode. Okay, so um, Alan, a major theme of your book is this concept of the British as a Shire folk. Could you explain what you mean by that and how this idea runs through World War II? Sure. Um, well, it, it strikes me that the, the war is seen by um, many Britons today as a, a war in which national character played an enormous role in the outcome of events. And in many ways, the, the book um, deals with these extremely dramatic first three years um, of the of the war, of the, the period immediately before the war, in, uh, starting in 1938 and then going to 1941. What it tries to answer is three fundamental questions, which I think keep coming up again and again in the memory of the war, which is how did the war break out in the first place? Uh, why did Britain do so badly in the first couple of years? And why, however, nonetheless, did Britain survive and go on to potential victory? Now, there are a number of um, answers which are proposed for those questions in the popular memory of the war. But I think national character plays a particularly important part in that. And I've tried to describe that concept of a, of a kind of mid-20th century national character with this idea of the Shire folk, which, of course is a, an allusion to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, uh, which were, of course, written, uh, The Hobbit is written in the 1930s, The Lord of the Rings is written immediately after the Second World War. And although Tolkien explicitly uh, disavowed the idea that he was writing allegory, that he was writing about contemporary events, nonetheless, it's, it's fairly clear that um, people certainly read into Tolkien's books, echoes of the, the real world and the recent past. Tolkien's Shire folk, you know, the hobbits, are very much um, a, a kind of um, affectionate parody in some ways of, uh, of a particular way that the British look at themselves. So the Shire folk are in many ways, very nice, gentle people, rather detached from events, particularly events in far-off places, uh, perhaps a little bit slow to understand the wickedness that comes from outside their own very parochial civilization. Um, ultimately, of course, in The Lord of the Rings, you know, they are stirred into action by heroic external leadership, and they are uh, able to win through um, in spite of their humble character, in spite of their rather meek appearance, um, because of a number of innate qualities that they possess. Uh, a kind of inspired amateurism, um, a kind of ability, a, a sort of native genius for muddling through, for stoicism in the face of uh, hardship and and so on and so forth, and you know it it strikes me and it it struck people at the time you know that there were there were obvious parallels between the 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 saga that the the, the hobbits go through in Tolkien's story and the way in which the British remember the Second World War they they remember their own part in the Second World War um, like all myths 
one of the reasons why I think it's been so successful is because it's not completely untrue. Uh, there is a kernel of truth to it. There are sort of echoes of, of, of half-truths, at least, to it. Uh, but I think it can also be deeply misleading. And I think particularly because the war is such a benchmark for understanding the British present as well as the past. Um, it's important to address these kinds of myths and, and to ask, well, you know, did the British really survive, you know, the worst years of the Second World War because of, you know, because, because of their native character, because of their national character? Or were there other reasons, you know, uh, does, is, is that a, an, in, an unsatisfactory explanation in itself? And that, that, that is part of what drew me to, to writing the book in the first place. Now, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about Britain prior to the war, just prior to the war. What kind of a country was Britain in 1938, early 1939? That's a great question. And of course, it, it, the answer, I suppose, is, well, it depends which Britain you're talking about. Um, again, there, there is a, a sort of powerful myth um, which is invoked in a lot of uh, literature and, and cinema during the war itself and then immediately after the war, which presents Britain as um, the peaceable kingdom, um, as some historians have called it. Uh, again, the, the kind of Shire folk idea of a very gentle, uh, parochial, inward-looking civilization, uh, uniquely meek and mild in, in lots of ways, uh, and a little bit naive as a result, perhaps, but one that is unprepared for violence, that is repelled by violence, finds it mystifying, hard to understand. Um, and again, you know, th there are elements of, of, of pre-war British life that sort of, that, that have a, a, an association with that. It's not that it's, it's completely untrue. Uh, certainly, you know, we, we look back at the 1930s today and we look at the uh, aggregate crime statistics and so forth. And we do see a country which in many ways seems very much more at peace with itself. On the other hand, however, of course, that leaves out an enormous amount. One of the reasons why the book begins with a, a few chapters, which you might call this sort of state of the nation chapters, to sort of think about, you know, what was Britain like on the eve of the Second World War? One of the reasons why I, I start the first chapter deliberately not in England uh, or indeed in Great Britain at all, but I start it in Northern Ireland. Uh, is because it's a part of the story which gets almost completely overlooked. Um, Northern Ireland was just as much a constituent part of the United Kingdom in 1939 as Yorkshire or Surrey or, or, or anywhere else. And yet it's a very, very different story. This is not a Shire folk land. Uh, this is a place of uh, sectarian division, uh, of a great deal of... Uh, violence, much of which is uh, inspired by the state, or at least the state turns a blind eye to it. Uh, it's a, um, a country of uh, state-mandated mandated apartheid in lots of ways, in which the uh, Catholic population is, is very much treated as a second-class um, second population with second-class citizenship. It's a surveillance state, which has extraordinary uh, powers of uh, policing and um, um, the ability to intervene in the lives of ordinary people. Um, it, it's a place in lots of ways which looks an awful lot more like Mussolini's Italy 
um, than, for example, or Franco Spain than than it does this kind of image of a of a of a very gentle liberal Britain. Uh, now, it's not the whole truth any more than anything else is the whole truth, but it is a different way of thinking about Britishness. Um, plenty of people fought the Second World War for a kind of idea of Britishness, which um, many, most of us would probably find unrecognizable today. Um, and it's not that that version of Britishness was any more authentic or inauthentic than the one that we have. It was just, it was different. And we need to understand, you know, historians, of, of course, are always banging on about the fact that, you know, we need to remember that, you know, the people of the past were not like us. Uh, even though some of the language and, and phraseology and, and images that they may have used were, may have been very similar, but they, they understood these things in different ways. Um, the British in 1939 did not fight the Second World War for, the, for exactly the same set of values that we regard as being paramount today. And um, we need to understand that in order to be able to understand how they got into the war in the first place and to some extent, ultimately, to, to, to understand how they, they got through it. Now, one of the key figures in the early part of your book is, of course, Neville Chamberlain, who's long been characterised as the architect of the disastrous appeasement policy. But what's your take on him? And do you think that the criticisms of him that, that last until today are fair? <clears throat> Well, that's a great question. And, and Chamberlain seems to be, the, there appears to be only two um, politicians, historical po politicians who exist anymore, Churchill and Chamberlain. Uh, and they exist in this sort of uh, permanent kind of Manichaean opposition to one another. So if, if a politician is uh, compared with, favorably with someone in the past, they're compared with Churchill. If they're compared unfavorably, they're compared with Chamberlain. Uh, and nobody, it seems like nobody else actually exists. Um, I found actually reading about Chamberlain, uh, because he was the, the, the wartime prime minister about whom I probably knew least when I, I started the project, I found reading about him fascinating because the real Chamberlain uh, is very, very different, uh, both for good and bad reasons, than the kind of the, the popular caricature. Chamberlain is perceived today as having been an extremely weak, rather frail kind of leader, uh, rather sort of woolly-minded. Again, there is this idea that he sort of exemplified some of the worst characteristics of the of the Shire folk. He's, you know, uh, um, overly gentle, overly naive, uh, too willing to believe the, you know, the uh, the lies of, of 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 others and so forth. Chamberlain is not that is not the Chamberlain that people saw at the time. Um, one of his contemporaries in the Commons described him as a man of steel. Um, and that was very much the way that both his, his friends and his enemies actually saw him, a man of extremely uncompromising uh, values. He was uh, a tyrant in many ways over the Conservative Party and over the House of Commons. Um, someone described his debating style in the Commons as being dropping a bunch of bricks on top of you and, and, and seeing what happens. One of the reasons he was detested by the Labour Party was because of his uh, unrelenting approach to them. He, you know, described them as scum. He um, uh, refused to compromise in, in lots of ways with the, with the Labour opposition. Um, Chamberlain had many of the the characteristics that we now regard as being um, 
those that politicians ought to have. He's a principled man. I mean, he's a, ma- he's a man of conviction. He is uh, a man who believes very much in his own iron will and his own destiny. Uh, he believes, just as Winston Churchill believed, that he and he alone is the man who is destined to save the British Empire in the 1930s. And his failures and his, his follies, and he, ha- he has plenty of them to be sure, you know, c- come from that, not, not from weakness, but from uh, a very, uh, perhaps an, uh, an over-self-regard for his own abilities and uh, a determination that uh, he is right, that he, he uniquely understands the situation and that um, he is the man of destiny who is there to, to lead Britain uh, when others cannot see the dangers. So after the failure of appeasement and then the German invasion of Poland, war breaks out in September 1939. What was the public response in Britain to, to the outbreak of war? Well, war, when war breaks out in September 1939, it's very different to the situation that had existed when war broke out in August 1914, uh, so a generation before. When the First World War had broken out, it had been a genuine shock in that, you know, Britain a few weeks earlier had been apparently at peace and suddenly it finds itself engulfed in a war. It's a very different situation in 1939 because in many ways Britain has been drifting to war for some, some time before then. Um, the re- one of the reasons why I began my book in 1938 rather than 1939 is because you, you can argue that effectively by, say, mid to late 1938, Britain is, is in a kind of quasi-wartime situation anyway, certainly um, in terms of its rearmament program and its military preparations for war. It is in a, a, a semi-wartime state. This, this, is, this again, is sort of you know, you, you, with your question about Chamberlain, you know, the, the sort of popular view of Chamberlain is that he completely neglected all military preparations for the war, that he uh, sort of naively assumed that everything would be for the best, and that Britain found itself completely wrong-footed when it actually found itself at war in September 1939. Well, this is a, 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 an enormous caricature. Uh, Chamberlain had, been, had embarked upon a very ambitious rearmament program, which had gone on for several years and was really beginning to hit its stride by 1938. Indeed, you know, one of the reasons why Chamberlain was so eager to try and still find a deal with Hitler by 1938 was because of the cost of Britain's rearmament program and, and because of the fact that he was terrified about the effect that this was going to have on the economy and on society as a whole. So in, in many respects, you know, Britain has been gearing up for war for quite some time, large military expenditures, the, the program of uh, air raid precautions, ARP, has been mobilized for some time. The public has, has been deluged for a long time with warnings about air raids, about what to do, and so on and so forth. Um, conscription, military conscription had been introduced in the spring. Um, the, the crisis over Poland, which is, is the proximate reason for the war, had been dragging on for months. So, so when war breaks out, of course, in many ways, it's, it's, it's not particularly surprising. Many people are simply resigned to it. When the, the, the actual first weeks of the war are a puzzle, however, uh, in that everything that was supposed to happen doesn't happen. Um, everyone had been had anticipated that the opening days of the war, even the hours of the war, 
would begin with massive air raids against London and other uh, British cities. The expectations were that there would be hundreds of thousands of casualties within the first 24, 48 hours. Uh, There would be... um, Huge numbers of people, millions of people would be fleeing the cities, panic-stricken. There would be massive numbers of mental health casualties as people broke down psychologically under the stress of bombing. Um, All of these fears, and these were both popular fears and also fears which to some extent were believed by the elite class as well. There had been some serious preparations for uh, sort of catastrophic uh, opening days of the war in which Local councils would be required to bury bodies en masse in, in mass graves with, with lime and cardboard coffins and so on and so forth. And of course, none of this happens at all. The outbreak of war is greeted with a, an air raid warning, which turns out to be a, a false alarm. And no German planes appear over British skies for many months to come. Instead, you've got this peculiar situation, the, which later, of course, becomes known as the phony war, uh, or the, at the time it was the Boer War, B-O-R-E, in which all the fighting such as it exists takes place overseas, takes place in in Poland. Uh, There's a little bit of fighting uh, on the high seas in which Britain is generally generally successful. Um, But other than that, not not much is going on. And this, this period really stretches out for another seven or eight months. And it's one in which you get curious tensions, which actually remind me a little bit, in a, in a funny kind of way, of the of the the last year uh, in Britain. People are always comparing the current situation, the current crisis, with the Blitz, um, which I don't really think is quite right. I think, in in some ways, you can compare our our current situation more to the phony war, in which there's definitely a kind of threat, but it's a rather it's a, it's a somewhat in, incorporeal threat. It's hard to to ignore bombs falling on your house but it but the threat that exists during the phony war is is a little vaguer um a lot of people don't believe in it a lot of people feel that the uh, literally that the war is, is is either a kind of fiction or that it is uh, something that is going to go away very shortly that uh, some kind of deal will be done with the germans um and what you have is the situation where, again, somewhat analogous with today, is that you, you have a, a great deal is asked in terms of sacrifices. So people have to embark on these rather cumbersome um, safety preparations. You have to black out your curtains at night. Um, you have to avoid the risk of uh, bombers being able to see targets at night. And rationing is introduced at the beginning of 1940. Uh, there are all these inconveniences that, that take place. Uh, and yet there isn't much of a kind of compensating drama to, to make it all worthwhile, to make it seem as though that, that these sacrifices are worthwhile. And by the spring of 1940, where, again, from a military point of view, very little has really happened at this point. You're getting increasing frustration. You see it in the press. You see it uh, in some of the public comments as well about, you know, what, what's the point of fighting a war, you know, going through all of these kind of, you know, day-to-day inconveniences um, when it doesn't seem like we're doing any fighting anyway. So, you know, uh, let's, let's either take the war to the enemy uh, or let's call it, call it quits, basically. Let's, let's, let's call it a day. Um, and I, I think that sort of frustrations both pl- plays, a, plays a part in, in Neville Chamberlain's ultimate fall because, uh, it's it's partly because of the sense that the government needs to do something, that it needs to um, sort of kickstart the war in some ways, that 
the government is encouraged to start embarking on schemes which are not particularly well thought out. And the uh, most important of these is the ultimately the expedition to Norway in April of 1940, uh, which can be seen in some ways as an attempt to try and do, do something, um, even though its, uh, its, its military virtues are, right from the beginning, are, are somewhat questionable. And it's the failure of that Norway campaign, which uh, in part ultimately leads to Chamberlain's fall and Churchill's um, rise to power. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think in many ways the popular memory of 1940 is one in which um, French defeat is almost seen as being a good thing. It's been something that allows the British to return to their own native genius, to be able to fight the war on their own terms, rather than those of having to rely on a very unreliable uh, continental partner. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now, of course, the, the big event happens later in the spring of 1940 when Nazi Germany invades France and we have this great battle. And you've described the fall of France in your book as the single most consequential event in the 20th century, which I thought was a, a really interesting phrase. And I, I just wonder why you feel that was such an important moment. That's a great question. Uh, well, I certainly, I, I, won't, I won't claim in any way to have uh, uh, come up with that idea. David Reynolds has described the fall of France famously as the fulcrum point of the 20th century. And I think, and I agree with him. I, th I think the, 
The thing about the fall of France is that in some ways it's the most over-determined event in the Second World War in the, in the sense that um, people tend to write it off as an inevitability. They tend to assume that in some ways it was bound to happen right from the very beginning, that in, you know the, the opening months of the war are just this sort of uh, prologue that we need to get through in order for France to inevitably fall, inevitably collapse, and then get on with the, with the main events. Now, that's certainly not the way it was seen at the time, and I, and I don't think that the evidence stacks up well with regard to that either. France had the most powerful army in the world in uh, 19, certainly in 1939. Um, France was one of the great powers of the world. France had gone through uh, a, a, an, an enormous ordeal, military ordeal in the First World War, and had prevailed. And... In many ways, what happens in, in, in 1940 is that the Germans take an enormous risk uh, in attacking France at a, at a point in which they are, in many ways, much weaker in 1940 than they had been, say, in 1914, for instance. Um, Hitler is aware of the fact that he's very well aware of Germany's weaknesses, that it, that, that it doesn't really have um, the army that he would like, that Germany is facing in a number of economic uh, difficulties. And he feels that he must strike out. He must take this all or nothing gamble, which is very much his approach to war and politics, um, and risk all on the throw of a dice. And as it turns out, the dice come up in his favor. Um, the French, for although in, in many ways they do have a strong position in 1940, their, their weakness, I think, is greatly exaggerated. Um, but they make a number of operational decisions which prove to be extremely unfortunate given the, the decisions that the Germans have made. Essentially, everything the Germans do just happens to turn out in the right way, and everything that the French do just happens to turn out in the wrong way. Um, it's not difficult, however, to see a few small, relatively minor decisions had, had gone um, the other way, that the Battle of France would have turned out very differently. And to sort of get back really to your, your original question about why this is so consequential, I think if you, if you think about an alternative 1940, I think that helps to explain a little bit about why it's so consequential. Imagine that France does not fall in late spring, early summer of 1940 which I, 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 I make the case certainly in my book, and I'm not alone in this and thinking this was entirely plausible. This is not a far-fetched um, counterfactual. If France does not fall, well, first of all, uh, it probably means that Germany falls uh, not, not, too, not too long later. Um, Germany's chances in a, in a war in which it fails to defeat France in 1940 are probably not very good. And you could, it's very easy to imagine the war um, ending in some form or another in, say, late 1940 or 1941 or something like that. But the more important point, I think, is that um, the, the war does not end, as it does, of course, in real life, with the military domination of the United States and the Soviet Union in, in Europe. The war ends with the original alliance partners, Britain and France, remaining in many ways the fulcrum of European power and for that matter, world power, uh, much less diminished in their imperial power than they were 
in real life because of the um, you know the the um, the very drawn out difficult circumstances of the war that actually happened. I think you also see a different story elsewhere in the world as well. Um, if France does not fall, then the future of the British and French empires remains much less clear um, because it's unlikely, for instance, that Italy would have gotten involved in the war which, which expanded the Second World War into the Mediterranean, into Africa. And second of all, perhaps even more importantly, it's, it's much less likely that Japan would have taken its great gamble at creating an autarkic empire in East Asia. And therefore, uh, you would not have seen the conquest of uh, Indo- French Indochina, of um, British Malaya and Singapore, of Burma and, and so on and so forth. So you're seeing an imperial polity which survives the Second World War in a much less diminished condition than, than is actually the case. Now, again, you know, with counterfactuals, you know, historians, of course, it's a, it's a slightly naughty kind of parlor game to, to take these counterfactuals too far. Uh, we don't know, ultimately, what the world exactly would have looked like uh, if France had not fallen. But it's not difficult to see. It seems to me entirely reasonable to look at the at that potential alternative world and, and see this as being one which looks enormously different to um, the world that we actually had in 1945. Um, we see, uh, uh, you know, a United States which likely would have remained much more isolated in the Western Hemisphere, much less focused on uh, global events. Um, we see a, a Soviet Union, which would not presumably have dominated Eastern Europe. And we see two European states, Britain and France, two, two world imperial powers, which in many ways are going to try and continue on as they had done in the 1930s. So the, the fall of France ends fairly ignominiously for Britain as well with the um, evacuation from Dunkirk. And in the book, you contrast this moment to the sinking of a French ship that was also called Dunkirk. And I was interested in why you chose to to describe it in that way and to put those two events against each other. So the comparison I make is between Dunkirk, of course, with the, the French town from which the British Expeditionary Force evacuates in um, late May of 1940, and, the, and Dunkirk, which is the French battlecruiser, which is sunk by a Royal Navy fleet in July of 1940 uh, in harbour um, in Algeria. Um, now, in some ways, it's, it's, it's meant to be a, some, a slightly provocative kind of comparison. Um, but the point I was really trying to make was that there are two Dunkirks in 1940. There is the town and there is the ship. And which Dunkirk you remember is important uh, it helps to shape the kind of narrative of, of what you what you see happening in 1940. The British, I think, um, think about 1940 very much in terms of, uh, again, national character and this idea of exceptionalism. And I think, you know, the, the kind of morality tale in some ways which is told about 1940 um, is one in which Britain has gotten into its difficulties by over-reliance on a continental partner, that the alliance with with France is seen because of the the disaster on the continent in 1940, is seen in many ways as having been a fundamental mistake from the very beginning, Um, that um, what Britain does through the Dunkirk experience, through evacuation back to the safety of the British Isles, brings its army back, is a kind of release 
a kind of liberation from European entanglements. And I think in many ways, the popular memory of 1940 is one in which um, French defeat is almost seen as being a, a good thing. It's been something that allows the British to return to their own native genius, to be able to fight the war on their own terms, rather than those of having to rely on a very unreliable uh, continental partner. And, and, you know, during the, the, the last few years with the Brexit debate, this was brought up in often in not very subtle, uh, subtle terms. Now, of course, there is a completely different way of thinking about 1940. Um, and I, I do think that it would, uh, it would behoove occasionally the, the British to think a little bit about the French attitude to all of this. Um, what happens in July of 1940 when the Royal Navy attacks the French fleet is in many ways a, a justifiable consequence of the, the defeat um, a, a few months earlier. The British are reasonably concerned that France having surrendered, that the French fleet will be turned over to the Germans, that it might compromise their own ability to defend their home waters and so on and so forth. So, I mean, there is a plausible argument for why this is a, a, a you know a grim thing that must be done. Nobody takes any pleasure in it. The, um, uh, the, the British admiral who actually has to sink these French ships later describes himself as a butcher. Um, Churchill weeps about it several times and so on and so forth. Um, but nonetheless, I think the, the you know the, the British tend to look at this in rather defensive terms and sort of think, well, you know, it, we really didn't have any choice. This is, in, in, you know, there's, there's almost an overtone of, well, you know, this is a consequence of your own failings. This is something that we were forced to do. The French can look at what happened in 1940 and certainly are not are not shy about seeing their own failures. But also, you can look at the defeat as being an Allied failure. It's not purely a French defeat. Um, the French can reasonably look at what happened in 1940 and see it in many ways of the British never really taking the Continental Alliance all that seriously, which is one of the reasons why they send uh, a rather rushed, small military force to the continent in 1939, uh, rather than the larger land force, which in theory they might have been able to prepare had they been willing to uh, to, to think more seriously about their uh their, their alliance earlier on. Um, the French can, again, reasonably look at British actions um, in the spring of 1940 from the point of view of being fairly self-centered, if not um, outright selfish. Um, and it's not that the French view is, is right and the British view is wrong or vice versa. It's just that if we want to try and understand the war, I think it would be useful to, to take a slightly less parochial attitude and remember that there are other ways of thinking about what went wrong. Um, it could be argued that the defeat in 1940 is partly as a result of the British never really being willing to face up to the fact that France's fate and Britain's fate were, you know, um, connected in, in, in very intimate ways. Britain ultimately is able to survive French defeat. Um, so in that sense, it's, uh, it, it is true that, you know, France's fall does not inevitably mean Britain's fall. But as I was saying earlier, you know, what it does mean is that the outcome of the, of the Second World War for Britain because of France's fall will be very, very different. And in many ways, it will mean that Britain's role in the world will have to change 
in a fundamental way, uh, in a way that it would not have had to do had the French, the Anglo-French alliance prevailed uh, in 1940. So again, you know, I, the, the, the point I'm really trying to make is not to scold or to, um, you know, to, to get rid of, of, a, of one type, two-dimensional way of, of thinking about things and simply replace it with another one. The point is simply to reflect on it a little and to, and to understand, first of all, that there is, there is another point of view uh, about what happened in 1940, which is no less legitimate than the British one. And also that um, focusing too much on, on Britain and Britain's needs and Britain's uh, own goals arguably cost the British a great deal uh, in 1940. And not really thinking about European partnership uh, turned out to be a very, very dangerous thing. And so once France has fallen, we have this idea of, well, to use your book's title, Britain at Bay, Britain fighting Nazi Germany alone, and obviously, this isn't entirely true because there's the British Empire. But um, how important was this idea at the time in Britain of this England alone or Britain alone against the Nazis? That's a great question. It's a rather hot topic right now because uh, historians have, are, have been writing about this a good deal because, of course, it's both uh, it's an, an interesting question and it's also one which has an enormous amount of contemporary resonance as well. Um, there is, a, there is an argument, uh, and uh, historians such as David Edgerton have made it recently, for instance, that at the time, the British always sort of knew that they were not really alone, that, of course, there was this thing called the British Empire that was out there that was, you know, one quarter of the world's land surface and uh, was an enormous, uh, you know, uh, global power in its own right. And, the, you know, the Canadians, the South, the South Africans, the Australians, the New Zealanders, and, of course, the India's enormous role in Britain's military power as well. You know, these things were all there. Um, that there was the role of the, um, the emigre powers, the governments and military forces that had come from Europe and so forth. You know, pe- people knew about this. They were, they were not naive. And uh, one of the reasons why the government was willing to fight on in 1940 was because of the fact that it was well aware of the fact that it was it was not just Britain fighting against the uh, against Germany, not just the British Isles. It was in fact you know the uh, the, the the global Britain, which was um, uh, much larger and much more powerful. Now, I, I think there's something to this. On the other hand, I think people also drew a kind of um, ironic um, uh, consolation. From the idea of, of fighting on a loan. After all, um, plenty of British historical myth draws on this idea of, you know, the, the gallant, um, uh, particularly the English. Uh, it doesn't fit quite so well with, with a, a conception of Britain, but, but certainly the English, I think, can think of themselves as having been through this experience many times before. They had been there in 1588 with the Spanish Armada. They had been there against Louis Fourteenth. They had been there uh, against Napoleon, of course, in, in, in 1805. And there was a, I think there, there was a kind of way of being able to mobilize history in 1940 and say, don't panic. We've been here before. Uh, we actually fight better 
when we're alone. Again, this talks back to the, this idea that the French alliance had been a mistake in some ways. You know that we we do be, we do best when we are uh, you know when it's when it seems like the eleventh hour when all all appears to be falling apart. Actually, you know this is when our own native genius really shines through. Um, so. I, I think people went back and forth about it at the time, really. I think people were able to both think of themselves as being part of this large global Britain, which uh, provided power for them, but also sometimes to reassure themselves by this idea that, well, actually, you know, Germany's made a big mistake by 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 defeating us so badly, because this is actually the, the kind of situation in which we do best. Um the thing that, that really strikes me about the, this question about aloneness is that it tends to leave out the United States. Uh, we tend to f- focus about this exclusively about the British Empire and about, you know, the Poles and the Czechs and the Free French and so on. And we, we don't talk very much about the Americans. And yet it was the assistance and the cooperation of the United States, which was regarded by the British government in the summer of 1940 as being the single most important factor in being able to continue the war. Um, The chiefs of staff were relatively confident that they would be able to hold out for the time being. So if the Battle of France is kind of overdetermined, you know, everybody just assumes it was a foregone conclusion. I think in some ways, the Battle of Britain is probably underdetermined uh, uh, in in the sense that everybody's convinced that it was uh, a close run thing that, uh, you know, almost certainly could have gone wrong. That's probably an exaggeration. I mean, it's not, it's not as though victory was absolutely guaranteed, but Britain was actually in a, in many ways, in a pretty strong situation in, in the summer of 1940, uh, in terms of Germany's aerial threat and the possibility of an invasion. So, and the, the government sort of knew this, they, they knew that, the, that for, the, for the time being, they were probably going to be okay. The bigger question though, was what would happen in the longer term? Um, Britain relied to an enormous extent, especially following the fall of France, on active American cooperation. And America, of course, is still actually a neutral power at this point. Um, And the chiefs of staff warned Churchill that uh, unless continued American assistance um, can be guaranteed, that there is no long-term ability to actually imagine a, a victory. And this is very precarious for a couple of reasons. One is because um, in the summer of 1940, America's neutrality laws mean that any material assistance that continues to come from the United States has to be paid for in hard currency, so gold or dollars. And Britain, very simply, is running out of gold and dollars by uh, the uh, the late summer, early, uh, early autumn of 1940. And whether the United States will continue to assist Britain once it runs out of hard currency is not at all clear. Uh, it certainly doesn't have to, and whether it's willing to do so is largely is largely going to be determined on whether the Americans decide that Britain is a good bet, uh, that it, that continuing to assist the British ultimately is in the American interest. And there are voices in Washington that uh, are raising real concerns about this. That you know that uh, th- you know th- continuing to assist Britain. Is just throwing good money after bad. That you know, maybe the British are washed up anyway, and surely, uh, at a time when, of course, the the United States military forces badly need material 
you know, equipment and resupply of their own. Surely the focus should be on, on dealing with that first and then worrying about the British later. Um, surely the, uh, the best thing for the United States to do is to focus on Western hemispheric defense. And uh, if the British can hold out, that's great. But if not, you know, ultimately the, the, the Americans need to look after their own territory. For, they have to have an America first policy, of course, uh, uh, which has resonances for our own time. And um, ultimately, uh, President Roosevelt, by very late 1940, is convinced that Britain is a good bet and that it is, it is in the interest of the United States to maintain the British Isles free from Nazi domination. But again, there was, there was, there was no reason why this necessarily had to happen. Uh, it could have gone the other way. Had it gone the other way, we get into counterfactual territory again. And of course, again, you have to be somewhat uh, hesitant about how far you can go with that. But it is very hard to see how Britain continues the war with a United States that withdraws further into uh, a kind of neutral position. Uh, I, I certainly find it hard to, to see how the war goes on much beyond 1941 without at the very least some kind of compromise deal with the Germans. So again, it's this question about, you know, the memory of the war is both overdetermined and underdetermined. People people assume that things which actually could quite easily have worked out the other way were it were inevitable, and they also, I think, tend to regard things that probably were going to work out the way that they did as being a, a, a much more open thing. That was Alan Allport. As I mentioned before, we'll be resuming this discussion in tomorrow's episode. Alan's book. Britain at Bay, the epic story of the Second World War, is out now, published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>